Hello again, friends, and welcome to mile 111 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. For nine miles from the Newton Hills till the finish line in Boston's Back Bay at the 1982 Boston Marathon, Dick Beardsley and Alberto Salazar raced in near-perfect concert under the searing midday sun. As competitors melted away behind them and the crowd roared deafeningly beside them, Beardsley and Salazar remained so tightly knit that each could feel his opponent's gasping breath and could measure progress by the proximity of the two wiry shadows marauding the most famous streets in road racing. It was an edge-of-your-seat, back-and-forth drama rarely seen in marathoning. Ultimately, both men ran under two hours and nine minutes, a first in marathon history and a mark that only one American broke in 2021. The taxing heat, relentless surging, and unwillingness of either man to crack earned the 1982 Boston Marathon the well-deserved moniker, the Duel in the Sun. As that race's historic 40th anniversary nears, Dick Beardsley joined us earlier this week on his 66th birthday to recreate the 26.2-mile chase for the laurel wreath. He also shared his riveting personal journey of obstacles, tragedy, redemption, and hope. I'd like to thank our friends at New Balance for helping make this episode possible. All of my co-hosts are huge New Balance fans. Phil and Cosmo are 1080 guys, and Benji and I love the Rebel. Check out a pair at Run In Greenville or Run In Simpsonville. Now, without further delay, it is a tremendous honor to bring you Dick Beardsley and Mile 111 of Seconds Flat. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Dick, it is a joy to speak with you. Thanks so much for sharing your time, and happy birthday. Well, thank you, Travis. It's uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show today. Thank you so much. Yeah, the pleasure is ours. It has been 40 years since your epic duel in the sun with Alberto Salazar. So much life has happened since, but how vivid still are the memories and excitement of the greatest Boston Marathon? Well, Travis, here's the deal. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but I can remember that day 40 years ago, like I ran the race this morning. Honest to gosh, I, for some reason, that has stuck out in my mind for 40 years. I can I can almost go back and, and recall every minute of that uh, April 19th of 1982. So take us to the morning of Patriot's Day, April 19th, 1982, as you said. What are the thoughts and dreams in your mind as you prepare for the start of the Boston Marathon? Well, I remember that the night before the race, you know, I, I could hardly sleep. I was, I was excited. I was nervous. And I finally, I got up about 7.15 that morning because back then, by tradition, the Boston Marathon didn't start till exactly 12 noon. So I remember going over to the... Um, to the window and pulling up the shades, hoping to see cloudy skies, a little bit of a tailwind, and maybe a little bit of mist or something. Well, I remember opening the, the shade, and all I saw was this clear blue sky and this big yellow sun coming up from the horizon. I thought, uh-oh, that's not good for a race that starts at noon. And I remember, <laughs> I remember going over to the television and turning on the Today Show. And Willard Scott... A lot of listeners might not even remember who he was, but he was the weather person on the Today Show. And Willard comes on, he goes, well, folks, it's going to be a great day in Boston for the marathon, sunshine and 80 degrees. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, Willard's never run a marathon before. But I remember I started drinking lots and lots of water. Back then, we didn't have all the fancy 
drinks, you know, sport drinks that are available. And, and I had, uh, I ordered up from room service. I look back at that now. All I had for, to eat that morning before the race. Now, I'd eaten the night before at about 6 p.m. I had lots and lots of pasta. Maybe had a couple of Fig Newtons during the night that I always kept by my bed before a marathon. And then I had two pieces of toast and a cup of hot chocolate. That was it. So literally, I almost fasted for like 18 hours. And back then, they didn't have like an elite runner's bus or anything like that. I remember I got down to the uh, front of the hotel and somebody from the New Balance Shoe Company was going to take me up to the start. So by the time I got down there, I found this old station wagon and there were already so many people in there. The only spot that was available was in the very back station wagons used to have a little area behind the back seat where you could put the luggage. So I crawled through the back window and I sat in this little cubby hole and part of me was glad I was back there because at that point I get into this little back then I would get in this little shell where the last day or two before a big race like that. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was just so focused. So I got back in that little cubby hole back there. So I didn't have to talk to anybody. And the window, though, wouldn't go all the way up. So as we're driving up to Hockneyton, the fumes from the exhaust kind of rolled back through that window. So by the time I got up to Hockneyton, I mean, I was kind of like green in the <laughs> green in the gills. So I remember I hopped out of the car. And again, back then, they didn't have any special place for the elite runners to go but my coach bill squires had gone up a couple of days before and just started knocking on doors to see if anybody might have a room i could just kind of camp out in so he found a little lady old lady that had an extra room so on a piece of paper he wrote her address and her name and whatnot i i, I can't remember her name now but so i get this paper out and i'm you know hopkinton's not that big of a town and so I'm walking down these streets, and finally I, I think I'm at the right house. And so I go up and I knock on the door, and this little old lady opens it up, and she goes, you must be Dick. And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she took me by the hand. She brought me into the house and closed the door. And there was a set of steep, narrow stairs that went right upstairs. So she's leading the way. She's got my, my hand in her hand, taking me up the stairs. And we get up to the top and walk a couple of feet, and she opens this door, and she brings me in there and she closes the door. It's dark in there except for a couple of candles burning, a little incense burning, and a pitcher of water sitting on the table. And I'm thinking, oh, that's it. I'm dead. <laughs> I had no idea who this gal was. And I'll never see the light of day again. And um, she said, this is my son's room. It used to be when he lived here. He doesn't live here anymore. And you can stay here as much as you want. There's a pitcher of water and a glass there for you if you need anything to drink. And uh, she gave me a big hug and wished me well. And she left the room and I never saw her again. And I thanked her profusely, obviously. So I'm chugging water, chugging water, chugging water. And finally, about 11.20, I thought, well, it's time to get out and walk around a little bit and do a little bit of a warm-up. So I'm... I'm walking around and my stomach was just sloshing with water. So I knew I was well hydrated. So I do a little warm up and stuff. And now it's about quarter to 12. And I thought, well, I better get heading up towards the, the finish line or the starting line. So I'm walking up towards the line and I look and I didn't even realize where her house was, was way on the back end of Hopkinton. So I get up to the street that the race starts on. Now, back then, that year, there was 7,000 runners in the race, which was a big race back then. And qualifying standards back then for people was a lot more stringent than it is today. And I panicked. I'm, I got 7,000 runners I got to get through to get up to the start. And I'm, I'm trying to get through the crowd. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like locked in there. And I've never been one to use my name for anything. But finally, I was panicking. I thought, I'm not going to... I worked so hard to get in the shape I'm in, and now I might not even get to the start. And finally I go, people, people, please. My name is Dick Beersley. I need to be up towards the front. And Travis, it was amazing. It was like Moses parting the Red Sea. All of a sudden this, this alley opened up, 
And I remember I got right up. I mean, I went right up to the, to the front line. And by that time, it's like five minutes until the start. So uh, I take my sweats off and I just, I throw them to some kid. I had a New Balance shirt, T-shirt on. I gave it to some little kid that was standing in the crowd. And so I'm, I'm standing at the, at the very front row and there's this big rope stretched across the starting line. So we wouldn't go in front of that. And with about a minute to go, the, the uh, starter, he puts up his pistol and he hollers, one minute. And I remember looking to my right and a couple of guys down from me on that front line was Alberto Salazar, you know, at the time, the world record holder. I looked to my left and a couple of guys down from me in that front row was Bill Rogers, four-time winner of the Boston Marathon. And I'm looking up and down this front row and I'm thinking, and I'm seeing all these Olympians and world-class athletes from around the globe. And I remember thinking, what in the heck am I doing on the same starting line with these guys? But as soon as that silly, saw, uh, that silly thought entered my right side of my brain, before it came out the left side, I thought, no, Dick, you deserve to be here as much as anybody else. And with that, the gun went off, and Salazar shot out of there like he was launched from a rocket. And I remember I, went, I was right with him, right along his side. And I remember we went through the first mile in 4 minutes and 33 seconds. And I'm hanging on for dear life. And, you know, when you're hanging on for dear life and you still got 25.2 miles to go, I mean, that is not a good feeling to have. But I remember thinking, okay, Dick, you're just, you're just a little excited. You're nervous. You know, you're going to feel fine. Well, I get to mile two, and I felt worse than I did at mile one. And, I, again, I'm just trying to calm myself down. I hit mile three. And the first thought to cross my mind, I felt so bad, and I'm one of the most positive people you'll ever meet, was to drop out. That's how bad I felt. How different my life would be today if I had taken that easy way out, made up some crazy excuse that everybody would have believed. I wouldn't be talking to you today, Travis. You know, we all get in those situations in our life, whether it be in a race or in life in general, where we don't think we can take another step, yet somehow we do, and then we take another one and I'm thinking, Dick, you can't drop out. You've worked way too hard for this. So I get to mile four, and it didn't feel any better, but I didn't feel any worse. And at that point, that was a huge confidence builder for me. And finally, by about four and a half, five miles, I started getting into a rhythm, and I started feeling really good. There was an estimated one and a half million spectators on the course that day watching. And back then, there were no fences or anything to keep the crowds back. But up, up in the upper part of the course, the, the roads were fairly uh, wide. So we had plenty of room to run. And I was in this big lead pack. And as each mile went by, that lead pack got smaller and smaller and smaller until we got, down, we got to about the 17-mile point, And there were two guys left in the race in the lead pack. Alberto Salazar, the world record holder. And as the Boston Globe newspaper had dubbed me the day before, Dick Beardsley, the country bumpkin from Minnesota. And nobody had given me, or for that matter, anybody else, much of a chance against Salazar. And I remember my coach, Bill Squires, before the race told me, he says, Dickie, when you get to the 17-mile point where the hills start, he goes, if you're up in that lead group or close to it, I want you to run those uphills as hard as you can and on the downside of them, even harder. So like a good soldier listening to his commander, I hit that first hill and I ran it as hard as I could, trying to shake Salazar, but you know he was right there. And same on the downside and the second and the third hill, same thing. I couldn't, I couldn't get a step on him. Now, finally, we're at the, the base of the infamous Heartbreak Hill, the, you know, the longest and steepest hill on the course. And I remember running up that hill as hard as I could, and it seemed like it was never ending. And I, I get to the very top, and I look back over my shoulder, and Alberto is right there. So on that downside, I honest to goodness, I felt like I was doing the 100-meter sprint, trying to get away from him. And I'm running as hard as I could down that backside, and I get down to where it flattened out. And I remember I didn't even have to look over my shoulder to see if he was still there. He was so close, I could hear him breathing. And Travis, at that point, honestly, 
I could no longer feel my legs. And the thought of having to run five more miles about at that pace or faster was almost making me sick to my stomach. But as bad as I was hurting, I knew Alberto had to be hurting pretty bad too because for him, you know, leeching off my back for the previous three, four miles, that was not his style. He liked to be in the front and everybody back behind him. So I knew he had to be hurting. And I knew this. I knew no matter how bad I was hurting, I knew mentally I could run one more mile. And back then we didn't have any, you know, goos and gels and jelly beans and all those things to kind of help us. But what we had back then and, and people have to this day, and to me, it's the best thing that we have of, of anything we can, you know, help ourselves with. And that's that stuff between our ears, the brain. And my brain was able to convince my body that I didn't have to run five more miles. All I had to do was run one more mile. And all of a sudden, the task at hand didn't seem so hard because I thought, well, all I got to do is run one more mile. So in my mind, all I had to do was run one more mile. Damn, I get to the 22nd mile point. I still got that little bit of lead and I'm going, okay, just all I got to do is go one more mile. 23rd mile, same thing. 24th mile, I say the same thing, have that little bit of a lead. And then honest to gosh, Travis, as long as I live, I will never, ever, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it, forget what I saw on that road at that point. In blue and gold paint, it said 25.2 miles. And right below that, it said one mile to go. And at that point, I got so weak need and rubber legged, I honestly didn't know if I'd be able to take another step. At that point, tears just started streaming down my cheeks. And at that point, I remember flashing back to that day in May of 1975, when I walked off my high school stage, the first one in my family to get a high school diploma. And I remember walking out to where my mom and dad were sitting and my dad who had an eighth grade education was crying. And so I had my dad my high school diploma and he handed me back a little envelope and he said, D here, this is your graduation gift from your mom and I. Now I wasn't a very good high school runner. I didn't start till I was a junior and never made it to a state meet or anything like that in Minnesota. So I opened up this envelope and I pulled out this small little piece of paper and in my dad's eighth grade handwriting, it said, D, this is good for round trip airfare to the Boston Marathon. Maybe someday you'll wanna run it. I get choked up now talking about it. Love." mom and dad. And here I was not only running it, but I was winning it. And I knew my folks were back home in Minnesota watching it on television. I remember thinking, Dick, you have got to get your mind off your mom and dad and back into the race. So I thought back to a terrible blind date I once went on in high school and snapped me out of it, got myself back in the race. And now we're about 900 meters from the finish. And I had the biggest lead I'd had all day, maybe a couple of arm lengths. And I knew Salazar didn't have a great finishing kick, but I knew he had a lot better one than I had. And at that point, I thought to myself, Dick, you've got to dig deeper than you've ever dug before in your life and give a last hard surge to try to break open that gap. And Travis, when I, I remember pushed off with my right leg and I took about two strides and I got the biggest Charlie horse in my right hamstring. I mean, it literally set me up in the air. Now you gotta remember, back then there were no aid stations on the course. You just got water from people that were spectators. You know, you'd hand you a cup of something, I'd look at it. If it looked clear, I drank it. If it didn't, I'd put it on my head. And so I'm sure I was super dehydrated. And I get this cramp, I grab my right hamstring and literally jumped up in the air and Alberto went flying by me like I was running back towards Hopkinton. And pretty soon he had five yards, 10 yards, 20 yards. At one point he had almost a hundred meter lead. And I'm like, my gosh, I'm, I'm thinking at one point I'm gonna win the Boston Marathon and now I don't know if I'm gonna finish. But I tell you, I learned more about myself. Those last two minutes, two and a half minutes of that race that has enabled me to get through way more difficult things in my life than that 1982 Boston Marathon. And what I learned on that race course 
40 years ago is that no matter how difficult the situation you're in is, no matter how high that so-called mountain is to climb, is that you never, ever, ever give up. As long as you're moving forwards towards that so-called finish line, even if it's in little bitty baby steps, there's always that hope. And it's about believing in yourself and and it's about staying focused and being positive and having faith. It's about commitment and, and it's about being in the right place at the right time. And as Alberto continued to get further down the road, pretty soon there were about eight motorcycle state troopers on motorbikes keeping the crowds back because at this point, the crowds were literally right on top of us. If listeners have ever watched the Tour de France when they're going through these towns, that's what it was like. So I'm running the best I can trying to work out that hamstring cramp, and I'm running along the right-hand side of the road, and I happen to be in the right place at the right time. As the crowd moved back to let me come by, my right foot came out down into a pothole I didn't see, and I hit that pothole, and I stumbled and Pertner fell down. But when I Pertner fell down, it jerked my right leg, and it popped that knot out. So now I had my stride back and I remember looking behind me and all I could see were about 75 people on bicycles right behind me. I couldn't see any of the runners. And I looked up ahead and I could see Alberto way up there in the motorcycle police officers. And I remember thinking, Dick, if you get second place and you give it your very, very best effort, you can hold your head high. But if you give up now, you'll never forgive yourself for the rest of your life. And I remember I started pumping my arms, lifting my legs, and honestly, the next thing, I, I felt like I was on a magic carpet. I couldn't even feel my feet touching the ground, and the crowds were going nuts. At this point, I, the pain in my legs and body were gone. My ears, I, was, I had an earache. The crowd was that loud. And I remember we, we come off of Commonwealth Avenue, and we made a right-hand turn onto what was called Hereford Street. I think they still turn onto Hereford Street. And when I, when I watched the video of that race, the, the last announcer, I can't think of his name now, who was working for the local TV station, he took over the call. And he goes, Alberto Salazar has outdueled Dick Beardsley and presumably is going to win the 1982 Boston Marathon. Well, of all the time, those words come out of his mouth. All of a sudden, here I come around the corner, and I got this white New Balance painter's cap on with the, the visor flipped up like Popeye the Sailor, and, and this, the announcer goes, but watch Beardsley. He's making a move, but the motorcycle's got to get out of the way. So we come up to the top of Hereford Street, and back then we made a left-hand turn onto a road that's no longer there. It was called Ring Road. Now, back then, we finished at the uh, Prudential Insurance Building. Well, then when John Hancock took over as sponsor, they moved the finish line further down, but they moved the start up. So we're, we get up to the top of Hereford Street and to turn left, well, two of the motorcycles, I don't, state troopers, I don't know, they even knew I was back in the race, kind of veered to the right a little bit, I suppose, to try to keep any crowd that might come out. So... I had to kind of run out around them just a little bit. And, you know, over the years, people, so many people said, ah, Dick, you would have won that race if the way you were charging on Salazar if those motorcycle police officers hadn't gotten in the way. And not for one second have I ever used that as an excuse. Because, you know what, I had to go a little bit wide, but I got around them. And I remember as I'm coming back up to Alberto, I remember thinking, okay, Dick, you get up to his side, Sit back, because I've were i I've been working really hard for the last half mile to catch him. Sit back for just a second, take a deep breath, and then sprint like the Dickens. Well, that was a mistake I made. And Alberto was a, was a seasoned veteran, obviously. He raced a lot of track races. So I, I, I get up along Alberto's side. So now we're dead even across the road. I sit back for just a split second to take a deep breath. And at that moment, Alberto starts his kick. And the, by the time I reacted, it was, when you got 100 meters to go, it was just too late. And I started gaining the ground back on him. But I remember we crossed the finish line. And I remember, you know, looking up. And, and as I crossed the line, still reading 208-something. 
And half of, you know, back then, you got to remember, that was the first time, I think that was only like the second or third person that had ever broken 209 in the marathon. And it was the first time in any race, any marathon, where two people broke 209. So I'm coming across, I, I finish, I look up, it's still reading 208 something. Half of me, Travis, had never been so happy and excited about anything in my life. And the other half of me had never been so disappointed. I'm thinking, I just ran a 208 marathon, but I got second. But so we crossed the finish line, and thankfully they had volunteers at the finish because otherwise both Alberto and myself would have been laying on the ground. Neither one of us had nothing left. I, if that race was another 100 meters, I don't know if either one of us would have been able to finish. So we, the the volunteers grab on to both of us and keep us upright. And I get over by Alberto and I give him a big, a big hug. And we chatted a little bit and, and he said some real nice things to me and, and right back at him. And, and then he had the state troopers grab him to get him over to the podium where, in my opinion, to get, to get one of the most coveted of awards in all of sports, not just running, but to be presented with, the Laurel wreath for being the Boston victor. And, you know, the mayor's there, the governor's there, family members are there. So I've got a couple of like JC Penney security guards <laughs> grabbing onto me, trying to get me into the garage of the Prudential Insurance Building to talk to the media. So I walk by with the security people, uh, the podium, and I look up and I see the governor and the mayor and Alberto's mom and dad and Alberto's standing up there. And I just happened to glance at, up at him, and he looked down at me, and without hesitation on his part, he's already got the laurel wreath on, he grabs my arm, brings me up onto the podium with him, and when Will Cloney, who was, I think it was Will Cloney, who raised his arm in victory, one of the, the main officials, Alberto raised mine right along with him, and, and that's something I'll never, ever forget that he shared that podium with me on that special day. So I get off the podium. I've got the security people trying to get me through the crowd. And it's like the LA freeway on four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I mean, I can't move. All of a sudden I, I'm, I'm just standing there and I feel a tug on my shorts. And I look over and there's two young boys, maybe seven, eight years old standing there. And one of the little boys says, hey, hey Mr. Beardsley, can I have that New Balance painter's cap you have on your head? I said, sure you can. So I take it off and I put it on his head. And his friend says, hey, Mr. Beardsley, can I have that orange sponge you got sticking out your shorts there? I said, sure you can. So I had this little kid, this orange sponge, and I'm thinking, man, these boys have many more buddies. I'm going to be buck naked here pretty soon. <laughs> so, um, so anyhow, I finally I get into the Prudential Insurance Building garage. They got me sitting up on a kind of a like a stage and there's a table up there with a chair while Alberto is in the medical tent getting a few liters of IV of solution into his arms because he's so dehydrated I should have been right in there with him but since Alberto wasn't there I sat there for three hours speaking to the media and I remember when I while I was doing this inter all these interviews with with uh, newspaper people and from around the world I had taken my shoes off and I'd set them on this little table. Well, there was a bunch of media people behind me. So I turned at one point to talk to them. And when I turned back around, my New Balance racing shoes that they had made for me for that race were gone. And I'm thinking, well, somebody must have, from New Balance must have grabbed them. And so finally, somebody from New Balance after three hours said, Dickie, you, you're enough. So I finally got up to my hotel room. And back then we didn't know any better. You know, now people they get there with a hard race, and what do they do? They soak in a you know in an ice bath. Well, I I got the tub running as hot as it could be, and I'm like I'm laying in the tub, soaking my aching body, and the phone rings, and and my wife answered answered it, and and uh, the guy on the other end says, "Is this Dick Beardsley's room?" And she goes, "Yes, it is." She goes, "Tell him he ran a great race today." I'm the ones that I'm the one that took his shoes click and I'd never seen them shoes since. And I promised them 
to Coach Squires. He'd ask me before the race if I donate him to his Catholic church that he goes to for a fundraiser. I said, sure. So, so for 40 years, those shoes, shoes have been missing. And um, as I'm soaking in that tub, I still I'm thinking, man, I just ran a 2.08 marathon, but I got second. You know, Alberto ran two hours, eight minutes, and 51 seconds. I ran two hours, eight minutes, and 52.6 seconds, which they rounded up to 208.53, so less than two seconds. And I'm, I'm sitting in that tub, and I'm thinking, what could I have done differently where I would have finished in front and Alberto right behind me? And in my mind, I went back to the little town of Hopkinton, and I literally retraced every step of every mile from start to finish. And when I got done, Travis, I had a giant smile from ear to ear because there was nothing I could have done differently. And at the end of the day, when you know you gave it 100%, how can you be disappointed in that? And, um, yeah, it's hard to believe it's been 40 years. It just amazes me. And I, I still run every day. I'm slower than molasses in January, but I still love doing it. Well, Dick, you said it gives you goosebumps thinking back through that moment with about a mile to go and we get the goosebumps here in the stories too. That, that is arguably the most famous final few miles in marathon history. But as you said at the beginning, you were on the line with legends of the sport and you come from really humble running beginnings. You mentioned not being a, a champion at an early age. So how did it start and why running? Let's take a step back from Boston to the early time in your life when you found the passion for this great sport. Yeah, absolutely, Travis. Well, growing up as a kid here in Minnesota, uh, as much as I have a passion now for running, my my passion for the outdoors is, you know, I grew up fishing and hunting, and uh, I started my own fishing guide business when I was 12 years old, and I still do that to this day. And I was a, kind of a different kid, you know. I, I didn't. I graduated in the mid '70s, and you know, back then, people had, you know, guys had long hair. I had a butch haircut, you know. I wore flannel shirts to school, and and, and stuff. And I was so into the outdoors. Well, um, when I was a junior, starting my junior year of high school in the fall of 1973, I remember walking through my high school doors that day, and it was suddenly like my hormones had changed because at that point girls were had never been on the radar for me but I was believe it or not I was the most shy bashful kid growing up and the thought of talking to a girl you know or saying hi let alone talking or asking what on a date literally made me sick to my stomach but I noticed that you know, a lot of my buddies that I you know that I knew in school who were good in sports you know, they always wore their high school letter jackets to school, and they always had girls hanging all over them. So I thought, well, that's it. All I got to do is earn myself a letter jacket, and the chicks will come to me. So like a lot of young boys, young men, whatever you want to call them, I decided I'm going out for the football team. And um, now remember, you know, back then I was six foot tall, 135 pounds soaking wet. And I, I, I don't weigh a whole lot more than that now, but I remember – after school got out, I literally ran into the boys' locker room, and my, my gym teacher was the head football coach. And I remember going, Coach Schaefer. I was so excited. I go, Coach Schaefer, I'm coming out for the football team. And he didn't say a word. He just started laughing at me. And he goes, Beards, man, they will crush you like a pop can out there. So you, you, you can't play football. And I would not listen to him. And so I remember – when I figured out how all my football gear went on my body, I ran out there on the field with about 25 other guys, something like that. And I'll never forget this. We're out, we're in the middle of the field at about the 50 yard line. And we have a, a circle around coach Schaefer, who's standing in the middle, holding a football, explaining what we're going to do that afternoon for practice. When all of a sudden he takes that football and he throws it towards the end zone and he hollers out Beardsley fumble get the ball. So I'm sure he's trying to figure out if I know how to play this game. So I take off sprinting as fast as my skinny little legs will take me. And I remember jumping on that football and about 15 other guys hog piled on top of me. And I, I remember when I got out of that massive humanity up out of that pile of guys, my helmet was <laughs> crooked. 
my shoulder pads were sticking out, my football pants were down to my ankles. And at that moment, I'm thinking, there's not a girl alive that is worth going through this. So I quit. I mean, on the spot, I quit. I walked off the field. My entire football career from start to finish lasted about 43 and a half minutes. And what little self-esteem I had back then kind of went right, right down the, the drain. I mean, here I was. I was 17 years old. I'd, I'd uh, never had a date with a girl. Couldn't even talk to one on the you know, in school, and, and now I don't last an hour on the football squad. And I was kind of devastated, but sometimes what we perceive as our, you know, biggest disappointments sometimes turn out to be an incredible blessing. And and that's the way it was for me, because a couple of days later, a, a friend of mine says, Beards, you know, I heard you flopped on the football team. He goes, you ever thought about going out for the cross-country team? I had, I never heard of a cross country team. I had no idea what it was. So I asked him and he said, yeah, we run through the woods and up and down the hills, jumping over logs and cricks. And I thought, well, gosh, going to be out in the woods. That sounds like it might be kind of fun. So the following Monday, I show up for my first day of cross country practice. I didn't even know they made running shoes. I think I had a pair of my gym shoes on for my, my first pair of running shoes. And our coach says, all right, boys, line up out there on the road in front of the school. We're going to do the around-the-block run. Now, I never run before, but I knew this. I knew I was determined enough that I could, and stubborn enough, that I could surely stay with my teammates to run around the block. So our coach blows a whistle, and off we go. We get down to the end of the first street. We turn left. I'm right with all my teammates. Now, when I say all my teammates, we, didn't, we only had about 10 guys out on the whole team. We get up to the next street. We turn left. I'm still with all my teammates. And, and now I'm thinking, all right, we get up to the next street corner. We turn left, back to the high school. Practice is over. I think I'm going to like this sport. So we're getting up to the next street corner, and I kind of start leaning to the left, but all the guys keep going straight. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I guess they're feeling pretty good this morning. We're going to run two blocks. So we get up to the next street corner, and I don't just lean left, I actually turn left, and they kept going straight. And at that point, it felt like somebody had their hand on my throat trying to rip my heart out. It felt like my lungs were about ready to explode. And pretty soon, we were out of streets in town and out into the countryside. And not long after that, my teammates were so far in front of me, I could no longer see them. Well, thankfully, one of them came back to her. Honestly, I was struggling to put one foot in front of the other. And he says to me, Beards, follow the road you're on all the way down to the end. When you get to the end of it, turn left. When you get to the next road, turn left there, and it'll take you back to the high school. And off he went. Well, what I found out later, what they called their around-the-block run was actually 3.2 miles long. Now, that doesn't seem very long to me or far to me today, but back then, it seemed like forever. And believe it or not, I had to walk the last mile. By the time I got back to my high school parking lot, all my teammates and my coach had already showered and gone home. But I remember crossing that imaginary finish line, and I was so excited. I thought, man, I don't know how far I just ran and walked, but I made it. And, and I'm saying to myself, I'll just bet you, Dick, if you work real, real hard, if you do what your coach tells you to do, if you be determined and, and have faith and commitment, I'll just bet you, Dick, you can get good enough to make the varsity squad, to earn the letter jacket, to get the date with a girl. That was my whole reason to be out there was to get the date with a girl. And Travis, I did everything my coach told me to do. I showed up on time for practice. Never complained about a workout, even ran on the weekends when I didn't have to. But, I, you know, I was terrible. Uh, thankfully, we had a JV squad, so I, I could at least run in some JV meets. But I never got onto the varsity squad. And I remember when the season ended that fall of 1973, I didn't run another step until the following spring. My coach says, Beards, now you're coming out for the track team, aren't you? I go, the track team, you mean you guys and gals that run around that 
dirt road that goes around the football field. We had just had a dirt track. He goes, yeah. I go, ah. I go, that's fishing season at that point here in Minnesota. But my, I'd already set a goal for myself when the cross-country season got over the fall before. And my goal was to run every single day that summer once school got out. So school got out. The next day, I got into my running program, and I ran every single day that summer. I didn't run real far or many days very fast, but I ran every single day. And I came back from my senior year of high school, my second year of cross country, and it was a year to the day. We did that same around the block run, but this time, instead of all my teammates finishing in front of me, they all finished behind me. Now that, that's not saying a whole lot because we didn't have a, a real good team, but it just showed me that, man, you know, don't let anybody take away those dreams and goals that you have for yourself, especially yourself. Yeah, there's some days you have self-doubt, but you just got to forge ahead. Now, saying all that, even though I was quite a bit better than I was the year before, I never did qualify for the state meet in cross country. And then I did run track then in the spring of, of 1975. But again, I didn't, um, I didn't qualify for the state meet. But the seed had been planted, and, and I'd fallen in love with this great sport of running, distance running. So let's take that and jump forward about a half dozen years. As the Boston Globe said, Dickie Beardsley, country bumpkin, from that kid to the winter and spring leading up to Boston 82, from 3.2 miles that first day when you had to walk, what did the training look like? A lot has been written about the time you spent in Atlanta, the mileage you put in. What did that look like? What were some of the favorite sessions to prep you? For the duel in the sun yeah so um so after in june of 1981 i ran my very first grandma's marathon in duluth minnesota and that's a it's, it's my favorite race in the world the people uh, i've been there every year since that year and um i ran 209 36 that day which just blew me away because my my best had i'd won the won the london marathon with inga simonson from norway we tied in March of 1981, I ran 211.48, and now I, I, you know, I was fortunate to personal best by over two minutes at Grandma's. So after that race, my coach, uh, Bill Squires, and I decided it's time to, to take on the big, the big one, the Boston Marathon. So from about, I would say, once I recovered from Grandma's, by about end of July or first part of August, every step I ran every race I ran was to get ready for the 1982 Boston Marathon. And, um, and Coach Squire, now you got to remember, we didn't have computers back then. He lived in Boston. I live here in northern Minnesota. And so uh, the Elliott Lounge is a big runner's hangout in downtown Boston back then. And Coach was a big part of that. So once a week, he would send me my, my uh, schedule basically on a – back of a beer-stained napkin from the Elliott Lounge. <laughs> so he'd send me a, my workout, and then we'd talk on the phone once a week. And finally, I, I had to tell him when he called me one day, I said, Coach, you can't call me after 9 o'clock at night because he would have me so pumped up. I, I, I couldn't sleep. I'd want to go out and do a 20-miler. So I was very focused to get ready for Boston. And my mileage, um, I was running, you know, between 130 to 140 miles a week. And then um, that winter, I lived, I, I lived in a 100-plus-year-old uh, log cabin out in the middle of the bush along the scenic Wild River. I mean, there was nobody around, but it was great training. I had, you know, forest roads to train on and, and trails to run on and whatnot. But it was one of those – that winter of 1982 was extremely cold, and I had a little – I had a little thermometer outside my little kitchen window in my cabin, and it was early February of 1982, and I got up that morning. I always looked at the thermometer to know how I should dress for my workout, and the thermometer was pegged out at minus 60, actual temperature, and, uh, but I knew I had to get a run in. I mean, I knew, you know, whoever's the, the big dogs, like Salazar and Rogers and whoever else, they're not taking a day off. So I remember 
putting on my New Balance Gore-Tex suit and uh, layers and layers. And I didn't run far that day. I only ran three miles because I thought, man, if I fall and break a leg out in the middle of the bush, I'll be a frozen fossil by the time somebody finds me. So I got back and I called Coach Squires because we'd been talking about maybe getting out of the winter. And I love training in the winter, but I knew to get ready for Boston, I needed to get in an area where I could run faster. Because remember, I'm running on snow-covered and ice-covered roads and whatnot. So I was doing a lot of mileage, but not a lot of real fast mileage. So uh, he, he called the Atlanta Track Club president at the time and said, hey, is there anybody down there, my athlete, Dick Gersey, who's going to come down there and train? You know, Atlanta, you're either going up or down a hill. And do you have anybody in your track club that could maybe host stick? Well, a, a guy named Mike Imperial, um, he was a, a single guy at the time. He said, hey, I've got a condo. I've got an extra room. Dick's more than welcome. And, and Mike and I have gone on to become good friends. In fact, I was in his wedding and everything. So I went down to Atlanta, Georgia, and it was so nice down there. I mean, many days for them, it was kind of cool. For me, it was like, you know, in Miami or something. It was so much warmer. And um, just down from his condo complex there, there was an apartment building, and there was a guy named Dean Matthews lived there. And Dean was a – he ended up becoming a 211 marathoner, but he was a sub-220 marathoner at the time. So probably – Three times a week, at least, Dean and I would, would do our runs together. So that was really helpful because I was, you know, living where I do. I train all by myself all the time. So having Dean there to do especially some of the, the longer, harder things and whatnot. So I, I trained there. And, and one day a week, I drive to this uh, public area along the Chattahoochee River because it was nice and flat there just to have a, one day where I didn't have to be pounding my legs up and down, you know, these roads. But the things I did back then, Travis, so, you know, people get so concerned at Boston about that 17 to 21 mile stretch with all, you know, the uphills. It's not the uphills that, that nail you at Boston. It's the downhills. And so, you know, where most people would run hard up a hill in training and then jog back down, I did it just the opposite. I would kind of run three quarters effort up the hill, but then I, just hammer it down the hill to get my legs used to that pounding. And after my second workout of the day, I would sit in a chair and I would take my fists and I would pound my quads upwards of a thousand times each one, thinking that might toughen them up. Now, did it help? I have no idea, but I knew this. I knew nobody else was probably pounding their quads a thousand times a day. And I have to admit, from the time I first started it, to when I quit doing it about, oh, two weeks before the, the marathon, my quads, they were like rock. I mean, they were just really strong. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I trained there. And then about 10 days before the marathon, I flew up to Boston to, and stayed with Coach Squires. He, uh, we were going to do some running on, on the course and whatnot. So I remember I fly into there. He picks me up at the, at the airport. and. The next morning, the workout was going to be a two, three-mile warm-up and then eight times up and down Heartbreak Hill. So I wake up the next morning, and this nor'easter had come in during the night and dumped about two feet of snow. I mean, and I wake up, and it's still blizzarding, snowing and blowing, and, and Coach says, well, Dickie, we can't do that workout today. I said, Coach, I am doing that workout today. He says, well... <laughs> My car is buried in the snow, and I said, I'll dig it out. So I went out there. I dug his car out. Somehow we got it onto the street, and he got me to within maybe two or three miles of Heartbreak Hill, and he couldn't go anymore. So I jumped out, and I somehow ran through the deep snow over to the Heartbreak Hill area. And obviously, I couldn't do the workout like I wanted to. I couldn't run it as fast. It was just a chore to get one foot in front of the other through the deep snow. But I remember going up one side. When I was going up the opposite direction of how you run it in the race, the wind was out of the northwest, and it was just piercing my eyes, the snow and the ice pellets. So I had to run with my head down. But I get to the top. I go down the other side, turn around, come back. And I did that eight times. And even though I couldn't run it, like I wanted to run it, it was more for me the mental part of it. 
because I knew, I knew Alberto was out in Oregon training somewhere where the weather was nice. I knew Bill Rogers had gone out to Arizona to train for the, to get ready for the race. And I knew nobody, at least is what I told myself, nobody is doing what I'm doing today. And that race that day, on some points in that race, on actual race day when I wasn't feeling so good, and I thought back to that day, that helped me immensely to get to the finish line. Yeah, that mental approach and preparation is so fascinating and so powerful, regardless of the level of each of our ability. It is that thing that we can all control within ourselves in any race. And it's so wonderful to hear someone of your level describe that connection. Travis, it's so true because, you know, at, at that level, training-wise, everybody's pretty much on an even level. You know, you're, everybody's really good. I mean, really good. Then where can you make a difference? And that's that mental part. Alberto was incredibly strong mentally. You know, when you get to the point you don't think you can run another step because you're hurting so bad, but yet somehow mentally you can – back then I could take that, that pain or – or whatever it was into my body that was making me hurt, and just put it in the back of my mind and just get rid of it. And that's where that, that whole mental toughness, that's the difference, you know, at that level. The biggest difference, I think, is when, when you get to the point where you don't think you can go anymore, where somebody might just decide, that, okay, I can't do this anymore, I'm going to fall off the pace, where some people that have that ability to have that strong mental capacity they're able to push through that and hopefully, uh, you know, get on the other side of it. Well, you two both showed just incredible toughness that day. Yet afterward, neither of you reached that same pinnacle in your running as you did on Patriots Day 1982. Was the combination of the conditions you faced that day and just the extreme, grueling physical stress that you pushed each other through, that cocktail come together to just take so much out of you? What do you attribute, looking back, that that was a peak when so many of us thought this could be just the beginning? Travis, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. That race took so much out of both Alberto and myself, physically and mentally. I mean, I had never pushed so hard in my life. And Alberto, when we were hugging each other, and he goes, Dick, I've never, ever been pushed harder by anybody in my life, ever. That was coming from him. And, you know, he, his whole inside heat system inside just got all way out of whack. I, um, I started almost immediately started having Achilles problems. And, and it was probably from the, just the, the intensity of my training. You know, back then, I didn't believe in rest days. You know, every day, if I wasn't out the door at an easy day was sub six minute pace, you know, and I look back on that now and I, and I, and I think, gosh, I, I realize now how important those easy days are. And it's okay to take a day off once in a while. Man, if I didn't run two times a day, seven days a week, I'm thinking, well, somebody's going to have an advantage on me. And, and, and that can be a, a good mindset, but can also be a little detrimental also. And yeah, neither one of us ever ran that fast again. But if that was going to be my, uh, my swan song as far as my best in running, what better race could it have my, my downfall started of that Boston Marathon? I mean, because honest to gosh, I started having Achilles problems, but uh, a month or so after that race, one of the, I think it was Sports Illustrated, you know, we were only two years from the Olympics in Los Angeles. And some of the writers were saying, not only will Dick Birdsley make the Olympic team, some of them were saying, I'm going to win a medal. And I thought the same thing. You know, I wouldn't say this to anybody else, but in my mind, I thought, I'm going to make this Olympic team. I'm going to represent the U.S. And then I never even made it to the Olympic trials marathon because my Achilles, I had two surgeries uh, a year before the Olympics. So I never even got the chance. And, um, and Alberto, he made the team, but again, the heat got to him and, you know, he finished way back. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those races that I knew that day 
I had nothing left to give. And Alberto, if he was talking to us right now, he would say the same thing. Um, I'd never pushed myself any harder than that day. And, but yeah, it is what it is, but it's no regrets, all good memories. You're right. That is a pretty great place to have a peak if that was one in your running <laughs> career. We would all take that memory for sure. Dick, after your racing career ended, you faced tremendous obstacles and valleys in your personal life. If you could tell us some about the subsequent years, and, but moreover, your experience of grace and redemption and hope that has made you into the man you are today. Yeah, so after my second Achilles surgery in 1983, I basically had to take almost two years off. And um, we were on the farm. I was milk, you know, milking cows, and, and I was doing my fishing guide business. And, and I finally got back to I could start running again. And after a, about a year, my Achilles pretty much was feeling good. And I, I kind of, I had that idea of, gosh, maybe I can, you know, I didn't even have a chance for the 84 team. Maybe I can qualify for the 88 team and make the team and go to Seoul. So, um, so that's what I did. And I trained and trained and I, I just could never, I mean, I qualified for the Olympic trials and went into the race. It was held in Hoboken, New Jersey, right across from New York City. And um, Alberta wasn't in that race for some reason, nor was Bill Rogers. So I was, I, I had bib number one. And my, my goal going in was I was going to make the Olympic team. I was 31 or maybe just, I just had turned 32, which nowadays is you're just kind of reaching your pride for a marathoner. And my goal was, was I'm either making the Olympic team or this is my last race as an elite athlete and it's time to, to move on with my life. And I'll never forget that race. The gun started and we take off and I'm up in the lead group and, and we're running like five minute pace, which I know to a lot of listeners, that seems like crazy. But back then, I mean, that should have felt real easy at that point, you know. And but I was I was I felt like I was dragging an anchor. Well, about five miles into the race, I, I, I couldn't hold on to the lead pack. And they started pulling away from me. And I'll never forget this. Greg Meyer and Randy Thomas dropped back to where I was struggling. And they're going, Beards, come on, come on with us. I go, guys, I said, listen, I'm running out hard as I can. I said, don't let me mess up your race. I said, get back up there. And, and I was going to finish that race so I had to crawl. And at one point, the lead group, they were so far up in front of me, I couldn't see them anymore. And I'll never forget going by the 23rd mile mark. And there was an aid station and person that had a radio going and a loudspeakers. And as I ran by and stopped to get a drink, I, they, on the radio, they were talking to the three guys that had just qualified for the Olympic marathon team. And I still had three miles to go. <laughs> and, but I finished, I ran like 227 that day. I finished, I had a big smile on my face. And I thought, you know, thank you, Lord. It was, it was a good run. It's time now to move on. Still going to run, just not at that level anymore. And I moved back to, um, to our Minnesota dairy farm. And my goal was to, you know, milk a bunch of cows and raise a bunch of kids, do my fishing guide business. And, and life was going to be grand. And it, and it was until um, November 13th of 1989. I, um, I, got, I won't go into the complete story because it, it takes a long time, but I got in a, a very bad farm accident. I got wrapped up in a piece of farm machinery and I'd broken all the ribs on my right side, broke my right arm, um, had a piece of steel driven into my chest, punctured lung, and my left leg was almost torn off. And, but I had great doctors and surgeons and nurses and physical therapists and, and a will and a desire to, to want to survive this and get better. I was in the hospital for a long time and and uh but i survived and eventually got back into running again and and for about two years after that i things were pretty much back to normal and then um in the july of 1992 i got in a bad auto accident a person ran a stop sign on the country road and totaled out my car and busted up my back so i had that major back surgery and back in the hospital and then i but I recovered from that, and then I was um, uh, I was running in Fargo, North Dakota, and I uh, was running down a street, and I in a 
in a snowstorm and apparently I, a truck didn't see me. I got hit by a truck and they found me laying in a snowbank again, busted up my back. So back in the hospital and I recovered from that. And, you know, it seemed like a, a few months later, I was hiking at Lake Bemidji State Park with my son, Andy, which is, I'm looking out my window at Lake Bemidji right here, the frozen Lake Bemidji. And um, we were hiking and a piece of ground gave away and I fell off a cliff and again, smucked up my back, more surgeries. And, and it just was one thing like led to another. And, you know, I ended up getting addicted to narcotic painkillers, opioids. And you're, you know, you're talking to somebody that grown up, I didn't drink, never done any illicit drug in my life. And now I'm, I'm hooked on these opioids. And, and I started doctor shopping, you know, going from one doctor to another to get more and more. And thank gosh, that it's impossible to do that nowadays because everything's computerized. So whether I got a prescription filled in Bemidji or New York City, it pops up on a computer, which is a good thing. And then, you know, when doctors could give me any medicine of the, the painkillers, I mean, this is how, how powerful they are and how they can control your life. I, I started forging forging my own prescriptions. I mean, I had never been in any trouble in my life. I'd never stolen a piece of bubble gum. And here I'm writing prescriptions for, for uh, painkillers, knowing I could, you know, go to prison, knowing I could lose everything I'd ever worked for in my life. But all that mattered was to get the drugs and take the drugs and make sure I didn't get caught. And, and by August of 1996, I was taking a cocktail of Percocet, Demerol, and Valium, upwards of 80 pills a day. And that I didn't die is an absolute miracle. And thankfully, on September 30th of 1996, I got caught. And um, I knew I was in a lot of trouble, but I, I was so thankful and blessed that it was over and I was still alive. And I knew the only chance I had, if there was any chance at all to get better, was to be 100% truthful, take responsibility for my actions. And, and that's what I did. I, was, I didn't have to go to prison, but I was given five years of probation and 460 hours of community service. I got right into a treatment program. And uh, this past February 12th, um, I celebrated my, thank the good Lord, my 25th anniversary of being drug free from those opioids. And um, that was a, a blessing. That's for sure. And, and, you know, after, after going through all that, you know, as I look back on my, on my life and stuff, and I remember after a couple of months after that Boston marathon, when I finally had recovered and my body wasn't aching, just getting out of bed in the morning, I remember thinking, well, one thing is I know I'll never, ever have to go through anything more difficult in my life. Now, I remember I was 26 years old, and I really believed that. Well, then after all those, you know, the accidents and all the 20-some surgeries to put my body back together, after I finally got recovered from all that, I thought, well, I sure wouldn't want to go through that again. But at least one thing's good is I'm always looking for something good, is I'll never have to go through anything more difficult in my life. And again, I totally believe that. Well, and then, of course, the addiction happened to the opioids. And after I had about two or three years of sobriety from the drugs, I remember thinking, man, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy for anybody to go through this. But the good thing is, I know for a fact, unequivocally, I will never, ever, ever, ever have to go through anything more difficult in my life. But unfortunately, I was wrong. And um, my son, Andy, when he turned 21, he uh, joined the United States Army. And uh, I'd never been so proud of anybody in my life. And I was, I was just, and he loved serving our country. It was an honor for him. And um, he, he got deployed to Iraq and he was a, a gunner on Black Hawk helicopters. And then when he didn't do that, he was in charge of a crew uh, that when they, the choppers would come in from the field uh, with the wounded. They'd get the wounded out and do a quick mechanical check and a refuel and they get the choppers back up. 
Well, he, he was over there for about a year and a half and he got made it back home in one piece, but you know, he had to do some things and saw a lot of things that, that weren't um, real pleasant. And um, when he got home, he, uh, he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, in October, 2015, my son Andy took his life. And that was devastating. I mean, he was my little buddy, my little fishing buddy, even though he was 31 years old at the time. He was, uh, he was just my, my little, my little boy always will. And um, <clears throat> it's hard. And I mean, I'm a lot better now than it's been six and a half years now, but it, uh, I think about him all the time. I talk to him every day and, but what, um, what leaves me with peace and, and and hope and actually joy is knowing that um even though i can't hug him right now i know that someday i'll be able to give him that hug <clears throat> and like i said that brings me gives me peace and hope and joy and um sorry <laughs> so yeah so yeah and now i i just i i enjoy my life you know i know it would be easy to wallow in sorrow, but that would be the last thing my son Andy would want me to do. And, and um, <clears throat> you just got to keep, you know, moving forward. And not that it doesn't hurt still, because it does, but um, I move on. And, and uh, every Father's Day, I always, um, since Andy was a little kid, him and I, I never would book a guy trip on Father's Day. It'd just be me and him. And every Father's Day, I, I still go out and fish with Andy. So I'll do it again this Father's Day, and um, brings back a lot of good memories. I bet. Uh, sorry about that. No, Dick. That's uh, we're so appreciative of your openness to share that story. As you described those challenges, and then the hurt you felt in recent years, I'm drawn full circle to what you said about the first mile of Boston, 1982. You were just hanging on. You could have dropped out but you chose to, to fight for 25 miles. And that is the beautiful metaphor of marathoning to our lives. You have- Absolutely. Yeah. You have inspired generations of runners with your grit and your passion. And you've inspired us as humans, knowing that we will fall, we'll make bad decisions. Times will get tough, but we can learn and become better people and we can make the people around us better despite those failings. Maybe that's most important. For those lessons, we are so thankful to you, Dick. It was truly a great honor to spend this time with you. Well, Travis, I, I appreciate it. And I just want to leave the folks with something that I've done for a long, long time. And, and I, I, tr I try and do it every morning when I wake up and it's helped me through some, um, some difficult times. <clears throat> and every morning when I wake up, I try to wake up with a smile on my face, enthusiasm in my voice, joy in my heart, and faith in my soul. And those four things have enabled me to keep going one day at a time. So uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure to be out with you, Travis. Keep up the good work you're doing, and uh, thank you so very, very much. Good luck to all the runners out there. Have a great run. Thank you, Dick. Before we go, a final note. This Saturday, March 26th, is our Group Hill session with our sponsors from Due South Coffee. We'll warm up at 8 a.m. from Due South's Hampton Station location and have multiple workout options based on your current fitness and experience. So if you're local, everyone is invited, and what perfect timing as we prep for Boston and are inspired by Dick's story of charging up and down Heartbreak Hill in a snowstorm. Hope to see you then, and we'll talk to you again next time on Seconds Flat.